What's going on, everyone? It's Friday, June 3rd. I'm Zachary Crockett, and I'm here with Rob Litterst and Jordan DiPietro, or as we know him around Slack, JDP. What? what? <laughs> and you are listening to The Hustle Daily Show. Today, we're exploring whether Paramount Plus has what it takes to battle the streaming giants. We're also going to break down why buy now, pay later companies are struggling right now. And lastly, why it's time to bring back AOL Instant Messenger's away messages. All you OGs out there are going to understand that one. But before we get into that, just a couple quick things you should know in the news. Residents of Warrington, Virginia, which has a population of about 10,000, they're getting the opportunity to rate their local police officers like Uber drivers. After each interaction with the cop, residents are going to get a QR code, which directs them to a link to a survey they can anonymously leave feedback on and give the cop a grade. It's been called an experiment in accountability, and the town hopes that it's going to establish an honest feedback loop between the police force and the community. Cue the donut jokes. LeBron James is officially a billionaire. Forbes made the declaration yesterday, making James the first active NBA player on the list. Over his career, he's made around $330 million in salary and an estimated $900 million for endorsements and business dealings. Google announced that it's going to combine its two video platforms into one super platform. Google Meet, its video conferencing app, and Duo, its FaceTime competitor, are going to be merged into one entity called Google Meet. It's all about that synergy. And Gemini, the cryptocurrency trading platform founded by the Winklevoss or Winklevi brothers, whatever their names are, (laughs) they sent out a somber note to staff members that they're going to be laying off about 10% of their staff. They cite a brewing crypto winter as the underlying cause here, but also macroeconomic and geopolitical uncertainty and all that other good stuff that's roiling our economy right now. All right, let's get into the meat. Rob, the premium streaming space has had a pretty weird ride the last couple of years. Sure has. Netflix was way up during the pandemic. It's kind of plateauing now. Others like Disney Plus are still looking solid. We saw the death of new entrants like Quibi and CNN Plus. But there's another fairly recent service on the block, Paramount Plus. So you want to go ahead and tell us, if you will, what this is? Yeah, definitely. And I'm not going to lie to you, Zach. I heard that Paramount Plus was coming out and was immediately skeptical. Like my first instinct, I think, with any streaming platform is why should this exist? Other than, of course, like the staples, Netflix, Disney Plus, HBO Max. And recently, there are two things that have really caught my attention about Paramount Plus. There's Yellowstone, that Western show that stars Kevin Costner, written by Taylor Sheridan. I think he's the showrunner. He's the guy who's done some really cool kind of Western movies like Hell or High Water. Really, really talented writer. And also Top Gun Maverick, which fun fact, one of the stars of Top Gun Maverick, which is just crushing it at the box office, was actually a year behind me in my fraternity at the University of Texas. Anyway, so Paramount has been in the news a little bit lately. Paramount Global, which is the parent company of Paramount Plus, was created through a merger of CBS and Viacom in 2019. And one thing that Paramount Plus has going for it is it has just like an insane mix of media assets. It owns Paramount Pictures, which is the company's movie production and distribution unit, which made Top Gun Maverick. There's Paramount Media Networks, which houses all sorts of cable channels. Like, listen to these just 90s and early aught staples. We've got Nickelodeon, MTV, BET, VH1, Mm. Comedy Central, just everything that I would possibly tune into to waste time when I was between the ages of like 12 and 18. 
And then there's CBS Entertainment Group, which obviously includes the CBS Network and CBS Sports. And this medley of assets and IP gives the company a really extensive catalog of content, but it also kind of forces it to make a lot of strategic decisions about how all of that content should fit into its streaming service. So this is more or less like a standard streaming play, right? They have two plans. One is essential, has ads. The other premium doesn't have ads. But it seems to offer kind of a nuanced options for premium TV and movies, right? There's kind of a lot of stuff going on in streaming right now as far as like how you should package different plans, like what's the best way to get new subscribers. Paramount Plus, because of how much IP it has and how much different kinds of IP it has, it has live TV through CBS, it has prestige TV through Showtime, it has movies through its Paramount Pictures division. So it has to make all these decisions about where these things should fit in. One thing that they're really bullish on is ads. So the essential plan, which is kind of the entry-level plan for Paramount Plus, comes with ads. And they also have a premium tier that's ad-free. They have a bundle, actually, that pairs Showtime with Paramount Plus that is kind of like an even more expensive option. And then one thing that they've been doing is they're typically adding the movies that are coming out of Paramount Pictures to Paramount Plus within the 45-day window when they're still in theaters. Mm -hmm. So they're not really worried about cannibalizing theater revenue. Top Gun Maverick is a recent exception because I think they correctly anticipated that it was going to absolutely crush it at the box Mm -hmm. office. A lot of people, I think, are making their return to the movie theater to see Top Gun Maverick. It's like the first movie that a lot of people have seen in a while, and the box office numbers speak for that. It's the breakthrough movie. Exactly. Exactly. That Tom Cruise is one pretty charismatic (laughs) dude. I don't know how you're going to keep people away from the box office when he's on the screen. Well, one thing I found really interesting about Paramount Plus is that it's not really going as hard on the content as other platforms are. You know, in in 2022, we saw Amazon acquire MGM Studios for eight and a half billion. Discovery and Warner Media merged in this massive $43 million deal. What the hell is Paramount doing here? They have a totally different strategy, it seems, on the content front. Yeah, so there have been a lot of deals going on in streaming, obviously, where people have been acquiring content, even beyond Amazon and MGM and Discovery and Warner Media. You've seen The Office change hands from Netflix to Peacock. You've seen Netflix go in and spend a lot of money to get the rights to Seinfeld. Paramount has really kind of stood pat, I think because they have a lot of confidence in their catalog. And the numbers suggest that it's been working so far. In Q1, Paramount Plus gained right around 7 million subscribers. This month, actually, Warren Buffett revealed that his firm, Berkshire Hathaway, had built up a $2.6 billion stake in Paramount which sent the stock soaring, I think, 16%. Hmm. So things are looking pretty good right now, but I know there are definitely still critics out there that don't really think Paramount is long for streaming, if you will. Right. Well, Jordan, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think I'm one of those critics for sure. Not that I like (laughs) to take the contrarian perspective from Buffett, but Hmm. I think that they're going to end up getting acquired. Best case, maybe they'll merge with somebody else. But there's, I think, two reasons for this. One is I read that there are... 50 different streaming services right now across North America, 50 services. And it reminds me of a quote from Mark Andreessen, who had said, there's two ways to make money, bundle and unbundle. Mm -hmm. And so we went through this huge phase, right, where we were unbundling everything from cable and it felt amazing. And we were looking at Netflix and everyone was canceling cables, you know, the death to cable and cutting the cord, et cetera. But now we've got 50 Mm -hmm. different streaming services and it's just too many now. So now I think we're literally about to do the same thing again, where we revert back to the mean and we've got, you know, three or four major kind of players 
Disney, Netflix, Hulu, Apple TV, Prime. I mean, they spend so much money on content. And while I applaud Paramount Plus for not spending a ton on content and trying to focus on profitability and free cash flow, I just think it's going to be so hard to compete with the likes of a Netflix who's spending $17, $18 billion a year on new content. I just think it's going to be impossible. Mm. How many reruns of the real world can you possibly watch? <laughs> What's well, funny, I don't even think you're a contrarian with Buffett because a lot a lot of people think Buffett invested all this money because he has the same thought as you do that they might ultimately end up getting acquired by somebody else. Sherry Redstone, I think the daughter of Sumner Redstone, who used to run Viacom and Paramount in general, has been very open that she would sell the company if the right offer came along. And so I think people are kind of interpreting Buffett's investment as being speculative that there could be an acquisition down the road. Great minds, Rob. Great minds think alike. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The other funny thing that you mentioned, so like you talked about how we're unbundling cable and now like the inevitable thing that's going to happen is things are just going to get bundled again. We were all slacking earlier today about this regional sports network in New England that just launched its own streaming app and service. It's called Nesson. It's where the Red Sox play. It's where the Boston Bruins play. And they're charging $30 a month for this app. And through the cable model, any channel essentially has like a carriage fee that goes into your cable bill. And ESPN has this kind of notoriously high carriage fee, which kind of makes it like the underpinning of the cable model, right? Live sports and ESPN is a huge part of why people still subscribe to cable. But Nesson's carriage fee within cable is $5 per month, and they offer this streaming service for $30 per month. And as you can expect, I was listening to sports radio today, and the locals up here in the Boston area are very upset about this. It did not go over very well with the sports loving public up here in New England. Hmm. And I think it's an argument to go back to cable. Honestly, like at the end of the day, I think we might just find out that cable was the best model. <laughs> yeah. All right. So some consolidation on the horizon, probably likely in the space. All right. Well, let's shift gears here a little bit. We've also seen something else happen, particularly in the last few years. We've seen an astronomical rise in these buy now, pay later companies, companies like Affirm and Afterpay, Klarna. They grew really rapidly during the consumer spending boom. But a few macro factors have converged that have investors sweating a little bit. And basically what these companies are is they're firms that allow people to creditize every single everyday purchase in their lives, whether it's a piece of clothing, makeup, home appliance, whatever. It's kind of applying credit to every micro purchase in your life. And I know we've got some thoughts on this. You know, when it comes to the buy now, pay later companies, I know that a lot of them kind of operate behind a veneer of like marketing themselves as, hey, we're democratizing access to credit. Yeah. It is a great marketing theme. It is a great way to get PR. And I do agree with some of the thesis that like, yes, underrepresented groups typically have much poor access to finance. There have been plenty of examples where systemic racism exists within the credit scoring system. So there are plenty of things to fix. I just don't happen to think that these tools and these companies are actually fixing them. So Reuters put out a report a couple of weeks ago that basically said that one third of US consumers of buy now, pay later said that they've already fallen behind at least one or more payments. 72% hmm. of people that are using buy now, pay later said that their credit scores have already started to decline since using these mm -hmm. products. And so I think what these products are really, really good at is expanding the size of your shopping cart. And that's 
a valuable tool for merchants and shareholders ultimately, but I just don't think that these companies, they're not really living up to the hype that I think that they created originally. And now mm. that interest rates are rising, credit is becoming a little bit more challenging. Sure. The market has crashed. Discretionary income is tightened. Now we're also starting to see some of the prices of these stocks fall back to earth. Right. We saw a firm went public last January at $49 a share, rocketed up to 170 and now they're at 2850 Klarna Bank AB fell to $30 billion valuation down from a 46 prior valuation. So some of those macro concerns you just brought up about rising delinquency rates and higher borrowing costs are really starting to, to hit the market. Yeah. And a lot of these companies are so early in their growth stages. And so the way that these companies are priced, like all stocks and all companies are priced, are based on discounted cash flow, which basically says we're making X amount of dollars today and we use an interest rate. We look at all of our future values and we discount it back to today. When interest rates go up, the value of the stock goes down. So there's an inverse correlation there. And so some of these companies that were being priced so heavily weighted towards their future growth have now started to come back down a little bit because interest rates are just going up. Sure. The other thing about them too, Jordan, and I might be misremembering this, but I feel like when a firm went public, there was like a slide in one of their decks that showed how big of a percentage of their sales came from Peloton. Like, mm. I think they started with like really expensive things yep. and now they've like come all the way down. Like now I see a firm on like apparel websites to buy a t-shirt right. and like four right. installments. It's like, what? Oh yeah. I think there was some data that said the average purchase with buy now pay later is less than a hundred dollars. Wow. And so it's just what? like, you're really not looking at people who are making significant investments and they need installments. It's not a refrigerator. It's not a car. It's not something that could be like fundamentally important to your life. It's clothing, you know, and I know I'm generalizing of course, but with a shopping cart size of less than a hundred dollars, it just seems like it's making people buy more stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. I looked into this a little while back because we were writing about it for the newsletter and the way that like you talked about how they position themselves for consumers, right? It's like democratizing credit. But then if you look at any of their websites and how they position themselves for merchants, it's like, we're going to increase the size of your shopping cart by 45%. It's like, they're literally selling merchants on, we can make people more irresponsible about what we're buying. Yep. And we're just going to ramp up how much people buy from you guys. It's just, it's insane how kind of openly they talk out of two sides of their mouths, a lot right. of these companies. Well, and then the other really interesting thing about that is if you wanted to play devil's advocate, you could say, okay, well, maybe they're creating a lot more revenue for merchants or for small business owners, et cetera. But there was another table that showed the percentage fees that buy now pay later firms took from merchants. <laughs> for reference, Amex takes around the highest cut of all the credit cards and they take around a 2.05% cut and a firm can take up to a 6% cut. Wow, so the, the amount of money that they are literally taking from merchants is sometimes two or three times greater than the credit card companies. And we already hear merchants complaining all the time about, you know, the credit card processing fees, et cetera. So I don't know that they're really adding a ton of benefit for everybody. It seems like they're just another middleman. All right. Well, let's shift to something a little more uplifting here to, to close things out. AOL Instant Messenger. We all remember it. We all love it. I've got a question about it. But before we get into that question, I want to know what everyone's AAM screen name was. Rob? Yeah, I can start. The most recent AIM screen name that I had was Roblet1234, which was not very creative, admittedly. I think before that, it was WestBK10, which I went to West High School in Manchester, New Hampshire. And um, 
BK stands for Blue Knights, which was the basketball team I played for, and 10 was my number. So I think that's pretty much the standard AIM screen name, right? Something about <laughs> high school sports and some numbers. Oh, yeah. I thought you were about to drop the uh, BK British Knights on us. <laughs> <laughs> that's my secret screen name. Yeah, I was like, all right, so you're you're uh, a shoe junkie. But my screen name was not interesting. It slightly trumps your 1234 because mine was Jordan 5781, which was my birthday. So... Mm. Not much better. Zach, what do you got? Mine was Long Live Enron. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, of course. Uh, of course you could give was. me a billion guesses. I never would have gotten that. That's amazing. So perfectly I, uh, on brand, though, Zach. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I meant that ironically, but that was my way of dealing with capitalism at the time as an angsty 14-year-old. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy to think that this is, I mean, AM launched 25 years ago this month. It's pretty nuts. Makes me feel so old. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, the core thing here is that Wired just came out with an article that basically made the argument that it's time to bring those like old away messages back. AAM used to have these legendary away messages uh, where you could enter whatever you want. And if your friend tried to message you, your away message would just pop up and basically tell them to off. There were some legendary away messages. Um, Rob, go back. If you had to write an away message for your 14-year-old self right now, what do you think you wrote in your away message? Dude, that is a scary question. I think <laughs> there's like a 75% chance it was like lyrics from Taking Back Sunday or Brand New or some other angsty teenage emo oh band. Oh my God. Like, um, I love walking in the rain because people can't see my tears. Dude, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mine was probably something like uh, BRB, like getting a Pearl Jam t-shirt. <laughs> yes. Nice. Or going to the mall. What was that store called at the mall that had like all the incense and other crazy shit? Do you guys remember? Oh, Spencer's? Yeah, probably hot, like Hot topic? topic. Yeah, no, Spencer's is what I was thinking about. I was trying to remember that one. I straight up missed the mall vibe. That was a very, very yeah. cool vibe that I think was right around the same timeline for me as the away message game. <laughs> I love that away messages were a way for people to kind of communicate personality and yeah. quirkiness. This is a direct quote from the article. They say, an away message was a text box full of possibilities. A little bit dramatic, but <laughs> a mini MySpace profile or a Facebook status update years before either existed. It was also a boundary. An away message not only popped up as a response after someone IM'd you, it was wholly visible to that person before they IM'd you. Mm -hmm. That was pretty cool. Yeah. To be fair, there, there are some like modern day parallels to this. I think like bringing back the AIM away message is a little dramatic. Just, you know, on Slack every day, we have the ability to set an away message. You have do not disturb modes on your phone, et cetera. Technology has made something of an effort to shutter us off when we're away, but it's not quite the same. There's just something about those away messages that were more definitively, uh, you know, leave me alone, you know? Because nobody actually pays attention to them anymore. Right, 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 exactly. Yeah, I had a friend call me a couple days ago and he said, hey, like, is everything okay? What's going on? I was like, what do you mean? Sure, everything's great. He was like, dude, the last like 10 times I've texted you, <laughs> it says like you snoozed your notifications or you're, you know, you've turned your focus mode off or whatever it was. And I was like, seriously? He said, yeah, it's literally been like that for two months. And I checked my phone and I realized that I had literally snoozed and put it into like sleep note, like months ago. Hmm. So literally for the last two months, I've been telling people like, Hey, don't bother me now. I'm turned off. It has literally had no impact on the volume of texts wow. that I have received. Like I still get the same number of 60, 80 texts a day. So nobody pays wow. attention to anything anymore. <laughs> That's insane. The thing that I most miss that if we could bring back is the closing of the door 
on AIM. Do you guys mm-hmm. remember that sound when somebody left the room? It was like, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's totally true. Nobody listens to away messages anymore. It's because we're never away. Right. Right. Touche. Well, yeah. You know, I, I think the, the piece made a good point, which is, you know, AAM is tethered to a desktop computer. It's tethered to a, a bulky device that is on a table. And when you step away, you're actually stepping away. Oftentimes when people are working on a laptop, when they say they're going to step away, they're just, I don't know, reading TMZ or something. <laughs> they're not actually stepping away. They're just stepping away from work, but they're still on the device itself. They're still tethered in, which makes it hard to fully step away. I don't even know how away messages would work now. There's so many different like messaging apps that we use. I don't know if you could have like one away message to rule them all or you would have to just set away messages with every app. I don't know. Nobody's going to want to do that. It's like way too hard. Mm -hmm. It's like I got to set it for text. I got to set it for Slack. I got to set it for Facebook and Instagram and everything. Twitter, LinkedIn, WhatsApp. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. impossible. There's be way too many away messages. So then instead we just sit in apathy and get too many messages. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if I just start sending people messages with Taking Back Sunday lyrics, they'll stop texting me and messaging me. I would me. stop texting you. I promise. <laughs> yeah. And too. it'll act as in a way message. Yeah. There you go. All right. There you go. Analog solution. <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for us today, everyone. If you liked what you heard, we've got a lot more tech and business stuff over at thehustle.co. Our editor today is Robert Hartwig, and our executive producer is Darren Clark. Thanks for tuning into the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network, and we're going to see you next week.